Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are my friend LaShawn Williams and James Jones. They are brother and sister. They are Black Latter-day Saints. James is in town from Boston. We're actually recording this on Christmas Eve. I'm grateful for both of them taking time out of their holiday schedule to do this podcast. You're listening to this podcast, I believe, sometime in January. But by way of introduction, um, James has is a return missionary from South Africa. He um, got a psychology degree at BYU. He is about 30. He's unmarried. He lives in the Boston area, has a multifaceted career. Um, James was on a podcast, episode 153, where he talked about his story, um, as well as, how do I say his first name? Tekovi. Tekovi, thank you. I don't want to botch your name, Tekovi, in case you're listening. You're a good friend. <laughs> and they talked about their journey as Black Latter-day Saints, their thoughts on um, the 40-year anniversary of the priesthood ban being lifted in 1978. And I had just great insights from them. And I encourage everybody to go back and listen to that podcast. Um, as I mentioned, James lives in Boston. We'll be talking more about kind of the way forward and what we can do to better meet the needs of Black Latter-day Saints and also people that are investigating our church that are Black. And we also with LaShawn Williams, Dr. LaShawn Williams. I have been on a co-panel with her and heard some of her journey as a a Latter-day Saint, and have just really been impressed with this woman. Um, just to give you an idea of her um, academic background, she got a degree in sociology and psychology at Duke. Then she got a master's in social work and a master's in public administration from Marywood in Pennsylvania, and then got a doctorate of education from the College of St. Mary in Nebraska. She currently is an assistant professor at Utah State University, she teaches behavioral science and has been a social worker for 17 years. The name of her um, clinical practice if you uh, between um, teaching is called Relational Spaces. Do you have a website, LaShawn, people can find you or your clinical practice? www.drlashawn.com. I like that. www.lashawn.com. Dr. LaShawn. Dr. LaShawn, no space, no... No space, just D-R LaShawn. I like that. So I encourage our listeners to um, to go check out her website. And um, I've just been really impressed as I've heard both of these stories of their journey as Black Latter-day Saints that sometimes pretty bumpy, not necessarily because of their fault, but because of perhaps some of the things that happen um, in our church. And I've really admired their ability to navigate really complicated things and stay committed members of the church. So we're going to, we're just going to have a conversation here. I want to make sure that James, will you tell us by way of introduction, the podcast you do right now and who you do that with and how listeners find your podcast? Yes, sir. The name of the podcast that I currently co-host and produce is called Beyond the Block. You people can find it at www.beyondtheblockpodcast.com. And from there, you can see all of our episodes as well as all the platforms that were available to be listened on. And my co-host is Derek Knox, a theologian, scholar, poet, and just all around great guy. And I, um, Derek, when I stepped in the space um, trying to learn about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, I connected with Derek. 
he's um, a convert to the church. He's gay. Correct. Pretty unusual story. and Quite an unusual story. <laughs> and um, kind of knows the scriptures better than any, as well as anybody that I know. Better than just about everybody better I know than in the most. church. <laughs> and um, so I'm really glad you're doing that podcast. How many episodes have you done? We just did episode 34 this past week, and we shot a bonus episode for uh, some of our more dedicated listeners uh, talking about why we believe. The premise of the whole show is to talk about or is to read uh, the the intention of the marginalized into the scriptures. That's kind of the tagline of the show, um, centering the marginalized in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So more or less, we just are doing that in every episode, reading the Come Follow Me, whatever we're working on that week and talking about it from the perspectives of folks on the margins. It's a lot of fun for the both of us. Will you give us an idea of what groups of people that are on the margins categories? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, Derek and I, since we are uh, uh, queer and black respectively, we spend a lot of time talking about that. But uh, we also make sure to include uh, trans folks, women, immigrants, and just anybody else who sits on the margins of society, a big part of why we want to talk about that is because we believe that Jesus, you know, works in the margins. Not only does he love people on the margins, but he took pains to make sure that he was among the margins. Like he broke laws to be among the people on the margins. A big part of his ministry centers, if not the primary part of his ministry centers folks on the margins. And um, we believe it's very important to read that intent into the scriptures so that uh, we may be able to not only reach folks on the margins, but more fully come to an understanding of what the atonement of Jesus Christ is all about. Because the atonement, in effect, redeems people from sin and death, it liberates people from sin and death, we should always be reading the scriptures with the intent of liberating other people, not just from you know, sin and death with the atonement of Jesus Christ, but also from the injustices. This past, uh, this past Sunday, we just did Revelations, the final book of Revelations, or for the final uh, chapters in the book of Revelations. And in uh, Revelations 21, it might be the first time that somebody actually reads or that somebody in the scriptures actually reads intention into the atonement of Jesus Christ in a way that centers um, freeing people of injustices. It says, you know, they won't hunger, neither shall they thirst. Um, all the injustices will be erased. All like everything that is unfair will be done away with. It's probably the clearest um the clearest explanation of how the atonement not only frees people from sin, death, and pain, but also from injustice, unfairness, and dispossession and dehumanization. And that's a very beautiful thing that we uh, read in the scriptures and that we can read into the atonement of Jesus Christ, not only as something that liberates us from pain and sin, but also something that liberates us from injustice. I love that you're doing this podcast. And I, I love, love that I'm that you're. <laughs> And I assume with the Book of Mormon, you will continue to weave stories in. Definitely, definitely. Things that I probably wouldn't pick up that are there and there for a reason. Will you tell our listeners your temple assignment and also tell them, because I kind of glossed over your career, talk about your career. Yeah, so uh, currently I work as a an ordinance worker and a baptistry coordinator in the Boston, Massachusetts temple. I've been doing that for about a year now. I work, uh, you know, once or twice a month there. I also, my current career is, I, I've been working as a musician full-time for about five years, singing in acapella groups. Uh, lately, I've stepped away from full-time work, and even though I still sing part-time, I also do acting, voiceover work, and uh, also currently training to be a self-defense instructor because I don't like being a guy in his 30s who doesn't know how to fight, so also working on that. 
Um, and who knows what's going to come next, but I, I really like where I am right now in terms of being kind of an entertainment industry mercenary and I'll just live there for a little bit. That's great. Yeah. How do people find you? Do you have a website for mus- your music or um, do not- they find you on Facebook or just if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to find you? Yeah. You know, just find me at Twitter, like at jamcjon. like you can find me there. I sing in a various number of projects. Um, there's only one of those that's actually mine right now called DeFi. It's an acapella slash uh, R&B group. Uh, you can find them at, uh, at, DFI vocals on Twitter, on Instagram, and all the social medias. But uh, that's the primary project that is consuming my time right now. And there's various others, but not really worth mentioning here because they're not mine. <laughs> Thanks, James. Yes, Thanks sir. for just a little bit of background. I want to go talk to your sister a little bit. Um, you're also, tell us about your family. You've got a family, LaShawn. I do. I do. I'm a divorced mom of three children. I've got a boy and two girls. My son is 11 and is in the sixth grade. He's going to junior high. I know. I know. Sixth grade? Sixth grade. Sixth grade. Uh, Sixth grade. It's happening. And then I have a nine-year-old who's in fourth grade. And my six-year-old is finally in first grade. And I really did shout hallelujah because it was no more half-day kindergarten, half-day preschool, (laughs) half-day anything. I had my life back for six hours a day. I really didn't know what to do with myself. It was great. So those three and I live and work in Orem. We're close to Target, which is super exciting, but also very dangerous. We're close to school. Uh, Their dad lives about less than a mile, maybe half a mile from us. So they get to see their dad pretty regularly. And they go to church with daddy on some Sundays and church with mommy on Sundays. And they are getting into extracurricular activities. So my son is in The Lion King. Oh. He is Mufasa hey. in Lion King Jr. Go ahead, Beckton. In March. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to come out for that, it'd be great. All right. Um, my middle, my middle little is our athlete. She's a basketball player. Super exciting. I know. <laughs> I'm learning so much right now. <laughs> I thought, okay. Basketball, basketball. Is he the favorite uncle? He's the only, <laughs> well, the yeah, only you uncle. know, no, he's not the only, I got my other two brothers too. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, um, but he, he is kind of the favorite uncle because they, they get to see him and climb they're all over him. he's in town. Oh mm-hmm. boy. Well, I don't know if they're going to be back by the time before you leave. So I'm here for a blip. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. But yes, whenever he is here, they climb all over him and just enjoy everything about him. So it's, it's wonderful. And then my my six-year-old is she's a first grader, and so she's still into dollies, but really very much into unicorns. Everything is unicorns, like everything, and Polly Pockets. Which, when you struggle, like with OCD, the way that I do, and Polly Pockets, like these teeny tiny things that are incest, like it's the worst thing for me as a parent that has to like. I I survive Legos, with the sets, but you know when you when you miss a piece of the set. Oh, anyway, so my life is full of LOL dolls, Polly Pockets, unicorns, basketball, and uh, Mufasa lines right now. You are bouncing a lot of balls between your clinical work, your being a mom. Yes, And your yes. work at U, 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 UVU. UVU, full-time faculty member in the social work program, uh, private practice that I have had for maybe two years, but have really started dedicating more efforts into it. I needed to rebrand it, um, and so Relational Spaces is all about five major spaces in our life where connection matters most. So family, friends, school, work, and community allows me to do what I do as a social worker, which yes, I teach as a faculty member. Yes, I am a clinical therapist and I work with individuals, families, couples, but I'm also a consultant. I'm also a community organizer. I'm also someone that can build 
curricular programs and can help teach and make changes at large levels and at small levels. So I can work with families to work on disconnection. I can work in school systems and with organizations to work on disconnection. So I do a lot, but I don't know how to not do a lot. That's a great answer. If I'd met you as a high school student, would you have told me you're going to become, get a, a doctorate <laughs> and, and a couple master's degree and a college education? If you had met me in high school, I had just met one of my favorite mentors who was the Air Force Junior ROTC Sergeant, Sergeant Cecil McLaurin. Um, may he rest in peace and power. And he had recruited me to do ROTC. And he is the second person responsible for what I say the monster is that you see today. Um, you would not have known that I would have a doctorate and two masters. You would think that I would still be focusing on going to med school. I don't do really well with bodily fluids. And so I didn't want med school was not going to work. And it wasn't until I had a conversation, um, two conversations that kind of shifted my view. They said, what kind of doctor would you be? And I was like, I'll be the doctor that's in the waiting room with the family talking about their loved one, hoping to make sure that they feel okay and that they're calm and that they're taken care of and that they know what's going on. And they said, well, if you're with the family in the waiting room, who's with the patient in the OR? And I was like, I don't know, but I'm going to be with the family, talking to them and like making sense, helping them make sense of their life, make sure they feel okay. That was kind of my, my beginnings into social work. Um, Second conversation, if you had talked to me in high school, I was dating my first boyfriend and I thought I was going to be married at 21, first kid at 22. I was going to finish college at 21, married at 22, first kid by 23. And I was going to be a, a stay at home mom for the rest of my life. So those conversations, career was always part of it, but I knew I was going to be a mom and a stay at home mom and raise kids as well. So from 17 to 40, a lot of things happen and things change. It's really cool. You followed this dream, though. It sounds like you were focused on a career and had pretty high aspirations for you. And yes. maybe you had no say, naysayers around you that says you can't do this or this is a man's world or whatever. And I just admire you. I don't know if you heard any of those voices or not, but I think it's really cool what you're doing. And If and they were there, I know that I was told not to pay attention to them. That's for sure. By who? My mother. <laughs> Tell us your mother's name and if she's alive. And My mama is alive and kicking. Mm -hmm. She is alive and kicking. Her name is Do Dr. Diane McAdams-Jones. Yes. Um, we come from a family of healers. Uh, my mom is a nurse. Stepdad is a cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, my biological father is a family lawyer. So we come from people who believe in connection and who believe in making things right. So... And we come from people who survived Jim Crow segregation. Like mm -hmm. my mother integrated her high school. My, wow. my, my dad and my stepdad, I mean, they... Where did your mother grow up? South Carolina. Wow. All three of my parents, my dad, my stepdad, my mom, all grew up in South Carolina. And so they grew up during the time of segregation. Both of my, my stepdad and my biological father are both uh, 10 to 15 years older than my mother. So they grew up in it longer than she did. So, um, but we come from people who know how to get through difficulty, but who also believe in keeping things together and healing and wholeness and connecting and correcting. So there was not going to be anything in our lives that said, these are the rules that you have to play by in order to survive. These were, these are the rules that you break because of the people that you come from. It's hmm. really cool. Um, way to honor your parents with both of your lives. Thank and you. what you're both doing and what you've accomplished so far. That's why I had kids, because just in case I messed up in my life, I had the kids <laughs> to kind of make up for the, yeah. the person that I am and that I was. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, my experience with my limited size of 
talking to Black Latter-day Saints is it's sometimes a pretty bumpy road. Mm -hmm. Not because um, you're making mistakes or because you don't believe, but sometimes just we as faithful Latter-day Saints sometimes add to your burden or culturally there's things that are difficult. And often the Black Latter-day Saints, and I particularly recognize this with James in our podcast, have developed a a framework to be able to navigate sort of these curveballs or bumps in the road or however you frame them up that is really helpful for me as a committed Latter-day Saint to recognize how just to, it builds faith in me. It builds faith in the church and helps give me additional tools. So talk about nuance, um, LaShawn, and just define that word for us and how it helps, how it plays out in your your relationship with the church. I think the best way to kind of explain why I feel nuance is the major concept is I've, I grew up asking questions as a military family. We moved just about every single year. I switched schools every year, second grade through 10th grade, twice in ninth grade. So asking questions, why are we moving? Why, why? Okay. We got to pack up again. Like there just became these things that we did and my normal was change. And it didn't do me any good to be upset about the changes happening. I got used to having friends and leaving friends and being the new kid. And so one of the things that I learned was that to survive as the new kid, I was always, I was very shy, still am very shy. Um, but I learned to listen. And when you listen to the people who are talking and you hear their story you see who they are as well as who they portray themselves to be. And I was the quiet kid who listened to the knuckleheaded kids at school. And I heard their stories. I heard their feelings, their emotions, their fears. And, you know, being quiet and listening to the knuckleheaded kids will get you protection from being bullied in school often. But I really learned to appreciate that. Um, And I learned to see people for more than what I was told. And so when I would not see people being accepted at church or at school or whatever, I would ask questions and I credit my mother with this for her. It was, we listened, we, we have everybody, there are no throwaway children. So we don't throw people away. We always make sure that you listen, you're respectful, you help where you can. And I can, my mother is such an example to me of welcoming people that I learned to make sure I paid attention to what was being said, but also what was not being said. And if I could hear someone into voice by listening to them, I got to appreciate just the nuances and the different pieces of them that made them the puzzle that they were. And how does that play? Talk about your relationship with the church. Just kind of share with our listeners how you feel about the church, what keeps you in the church, um, and how you've had to navigate things that are unsettling to you, if any. The church is kind of like a long question. Oh, it's a long question. I give long answers. I've been trying to practice like not giving long (laughs) answers. Uh, The church is my spiritual foundation because of the gospel. Um, Growing up outside of Utah, early morning seminary is your life. And so when you're doing early morning seminary, you learn commitment and you learn that it's the thing that sets you up for the rest of your day. doesn't matter if you're doing family home evening or whatever else is happening in your house, you do early morning seminary. My mother was the teacher for, I think, a couple of years in our house. So then I had to go. I couldn't sleep through because everybody was at my house and I had to get up. And so um, being in a place where I could ask and answer questions 
And I think having a convert mom who also had to ask and answer questions, I learned how to navigate things that weren't answered or weren't answered to my liking. And so I was like, okay, just let it go. Don't worry about it. Um, and I remember being in places outside of Utah, being the only Mormon kid at like a summer camp. And we, yeah, I don't know why, but we were talking about revelation and the, the apocalypse. And I was answering all the questions that my other 12 year old friends had at piano camp. They're like, are cool. you a prophet? And I was like, no, I just learned this stuff in seminary. It's kind of cool. You know, I, I gained so much knowledge. Um, with church, I learned to become a comfortable public speaker. My mother is the person who kept me up. I had to give a primary talk on Easter Sunday, and I had to give a talk about Jesus and the resurrection. I will never forget this moment because she kept me up all night, nine o'clock church in the morning. I was up till two or 3 a.m. practicing my talk because I had to get the intonation when Christ saw Mary and said, Mary, I had to get that right. And my mother kept me up rehearsing my talk, rehearsing my talk, rehearsing my talk. Everything about me culturally, spiritually, religiously is tied with the gospel as it's taught in the church. As I grew and became an adult, I learned about the church as an organization. And that's where I started having some struggles, right? Because um, I would read the scriptures, I would listen to different church talks, and there would be discrepancies. And so I'd say, well, I know that they don't, they're not saying these things because they are trying to be mean. So what else is missing? And how can I fill in these gaps? And those gaps became nuance. So I had to look for more because there were such fulfilling words in the scriptures. And I was like, this is true. I don't know why they're not saying it, but this is really true. And as long as I could hold on to what the scriptures were saying, I could let loose my grip on what leadership was saying. And sometimes I had to let that grip loose a little bit, loosen a little bit, because it wasn't either welcoming to nuance or I could hear my leadership's inability to articulate nuance. And I had learned enough to know that nuance was so sacred. It's not something that you go and push upon people who can't honor it. That last segment was awesome. Um, just the way you visualize that. Do you want to give an example before we go over to James? Of just an example where you had to develop where the scriptures didn't, what you read in the scriptures and what at times you heard from our leaders, there was that little bit of gap there. Defending the church, defending the priesthood ban, defending my blackness. Um, similar to my LGBTQ friends and family within the gospel, having the day where you have to go to God and say, is this true? Is something wrong with me? Growing up in a church where, you know, it's kind of like whispered about and whatnot. I was somewhere in the seminary years, either between 12 and 14, when I sat down and I was like, okay, God, this is it. Am I cursed? And I was in second Nephi. I was in that scripture chain. And I remember it clear as day. I went back and I read through the scripture and it said the curse was separation from God. And I was like, dun, 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 dun. clear as day. I knew personal revelation at that time. And I said, that's the curse. So I'm not cursed. The curse is separation from God. And after I had that experience, nothing could ever shake me. It's one of the reasons why I didn't serve a mission, because I knew what my answer was supposed to be, and I knew I couldn't give that answer. Um, but that was a big deal for me, and that's what started me on my search for looking to see, is anybody talking about race in Scripture? That's when I found, like, Armand Moss, some of his read, uh, articles that he had written. That's when I found... Um, the Standing on the Promises series with Darius Gray and Margaret Blair Young. That's when I found um, 
All God's Children by Cardell Jacobson that went and was an anthology of different people of color's experiences in the church. And it started, it started my search. And I was never scared to ask questions. I was never scared to search because I was in a church that was formed by asking a question. And that was always my fallback. I remember I had a bishop one time wagging his finger in my face saying that other churches weren't true because they didn't have the priesthood. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me because just because they don't have what we have, it's the same gospel and the same understanding. So what do you mean that they don't have it? And I just feel like one of the gifts that I have that I'm actually developing a lot more now is the gift of discernment. But I also feel like the other gift that I have that I've always had is the gift of Christ-like love. I don't know how to hate people very well. I'm like, well, you know what? God loves you. I love you too. Because if I know if I go and I ask God to help me figure out why I don't love you, that's immediately going to give me another measure of love. So I feel like those two gifts coming into them early enough and recognizing that I can always fall back on them as the gift of the spirit that I have, that has helped me seek nuance because I have to love you. So there's got to be something that I'm not seeing. So how do I keep looking for it so that we can create connection? LaShawn, that's really cool. Thank you. God is good. You've hit a couple home runs already in this podcast. I love, I wrote down your personal revelation reading second Nephi Mm -hmm. um, where it talks about, Black skin's a curse, yes. quote unquote, roughly that. Um, and you said curse was separation from God. Correct. And I love that. And I've, you know, I kind of, I've got to that point where this was just symbolic. It wasn't, you know, because it seemed like the skin colors kept changing too fast. Anyway, exactly. I was sort of, there was this logic in my mind. Wait a second. You know, does that, you know, it just seems, and then I just kind of, and that was me developing into a little nuance, but I think I didn't have to go down that road as a white guy like you would as a black person. And to read that, I think I would just, if I read, to be honest, if I read that as a, if that language was reversed and their skin was made white because of a curse and I had to read that in seminary as a junior high, as a high school student, that could wear on me. Mm-hmm. But we value personal revelation and I love, and we value asking questions, even though culturally sometimes that is not completely supported. I love what your parents did is they taught you to ask questions. And I love what our church teaches and your parents is to seek personal revelation. And that was the nuance you needed to fill in the gap to stay in the church. Absolutely. James, your thoughts on this topic or any other topics you want to talk about? Certainly. Um, With regard to nuance, um, I mentioned before we started that I had the opportunity to teach a lesson in my own elders quorum about the history of the church regarding race and uh, hopefully talking about a way forward. And one of the reasons that I wanted to have that conversation about the way forward is because of a scripture or a story in the book of Galatians chapter two, where we learn how the church responded to a racist leader. Um, Somebody had brought up the fact that I have a really hard time accepting that any leader of this church might've been racist because surely God couldn't have been with him if he had espoused any kind of racist ideology, but how quickly we are to forget that rarely are leaders perfect individuals, rarely are their saints. The most famous prophets that we defer to for their stories, like uh, Moses, Jonah, they all had, and you know, Peter, which was the one I eventually came across, they all had character flaws that were talked about on a regular basis, yet they were the prophet. They were, in essence, the senior most apostle. Now, the reason I brought up what happened in Galatians chapter 2 is because in five very short verses, we see a very 
And this is the second time we see this in the New Testament with Peter in particular. We see Peter do some kind of kind of foolish. We see Peter, the senior most apostle at this time, sit down for dinner with the church in Antioch, which is for all intents and purposes, an integrated church. Paul with Barnabas are overseeing this church. And the fact that the senior most apostle who is a Jew is sitting down to have dinner with this integrated church is a, bear, is a very big deal to everybody. But then we read in the next verses, some apostles come from, some, uh, some Jews come from James. I think the word they used was a circ- circumcision group. So some Jews, they come and they see Peter. And what Peter does next is kind of frightening because it just shows us how vulnerable we are. But what Peter does is he sees the Jews coming and he's like, oh, I'm eating with Gentiles. I need to go. So then Peter gets up to go. And what happens next is even more frightening. All the Jews at that table get up to follow him. And um, Paul sees this happening and he's like, I got to do something. You know, he, he knows exactly like we read briefly his thought process and his upcoming action. But um, Paul realizes that he can't let this happen. What, Paul, what Peter is doing in this moment is pretty racist. He's in essence saying that Gentiles and Jews cannot be eating together. And if somebody sees him eating with Gentiles, he can't allow that to happen. That's not, that was a big no-no. Tensions between Gentiles and Jews were still, you know, high at this point. So then Paul gets up and in front of everybody calls out Peter And he says, in essence, not deferring to his apostolic authority, not deferring to anything earthly. All he defers to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, because I saw that they were not walking according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I called Peter out on his hypocrisy. And that's exactly what he did. Now, what we don't get in this story is what was that conversation between Peter and Paul? We don't know what that conversation was, but what we do know is that that schism that Paul feared did not happen because that's what was fitting to happen at this point. If Paul just let what Peter did slide, there probably would have been another schism in the church, Jews separated from Gentiles, and that would have been no good and would have contradicted the very purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we don't know what was said, but what we do know is that the church survived. The church survived at least past that point. So what exactly happened in that conversation or what exactly happened between that conversation they had and the rest of Paul's mission that made things okay? And I believe it was the fact that Peter had the humility, just like he had when God called him out initially, to acknowledge his own racism, sit in that discomfort, and move forward accordingly, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the nuance that uh, I would like people to approach our our own leadership with, the scriptures with so that they can understand that our loyalty is first to Christ and then to, you know, our leaders, our families or whatever else. But our loyalty is always first to Christ. And I want people to get comfortable with this idea that just because our leaders are our leaders, that they don't necessarily need to have all the answers. In fact, you know, they didn't, they weren't born in social or cultural vacuums. You know what I'm saying? Like they have biases and prejudices just like the rest of us. They're entitled to those. They're human after all. And I want to, oh my gosh, (laughs) I said, okay. And my phone just went off, but um, (laughs) this is all to say that it is okay for our leaders to be flawed. It is okay for them to have been racist or to have been bigoted in any way, because that's all God has ever had to work with. And if that's all you got to work with, then, (laughs) then, you know, what are you going to do if you get a leader that echoes racist or bigoted teachings like that's just 
That's just what it is. And that's okay. We can sit in that and we don't have to be comfortable with it, but we have to acknowledge that is okay to do. And it's okay that our leaders aren't perfect. I think we should, maybe I'm going to push back on that. All right. I think it's to be expected. It's to it be expected. It should not surprise us. Right. Does that make sense? It shouldn't surprise us right. that it's happening. Right. Because I think all of us, I can think of so many populations who are like, no, that's not okay. They shouldn't be that it's way. Not. Absolutely, they should and it's not, not be. And it's not it's okay. It's to be expected. And right. I don't mean it in that way. I just mean to say that, you know, I want to extend the same grace to our leaders that I would want extended to me. That's what mm-hmm. I mean to say. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to hold them to a higher standard than I want to hold to myself just because they're a leader and I'm not a leader. They're human just like me. Am I going to expect them to do better? Am I going to push back on policies I don't agree with? Absolutely. But am I going to expect more of them than I would of myself? No, I'm not going to. Like, I think if we can treat them like Bible prophets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. And not like, LDS, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, prophets. Right. There's something that's so weird that happens. Because if you look in the Bible, like you're saying, uh-huh. Moses had issues, Peter had issues, Paul had issues, because Paul used to be called Saul, and yes. Saul wouldn't change his life. Let me let me witness protection program for Jesus. My <laughs> name is now Paul, right? right? Imagine the things that they had to wrestle with, and that's the nuance, because I'm like, yeah. what's the rest of the story? And when Paul is doing a lot of his preaching, like I'm like, oh, that's Saul. That's mm-hmm. Saul trying to make up. And we also act like this is only Bible prophets. It's not. It's not. It's Alma and the sons like of Mosiah. We saw it with Lehi as well. Like yes. One of the first stories is him murmuring against God and Nephi having to pick up the slack because Absolutely. the prophet was falling short. Absolutely. So like, that's, that's really all I'm saying is we got we to gotta create space for the prophets to be able to be imperfect. Otherwise, we endanger our own spirituality. We Correct. endanger our own spiritual journey. And we also need to point the people and our leaders back to right. look at what fixing a problem looks like. Because yes. you had King David, that was David and Goliath, that mm-hmm. was also David and Bathsheba, yep. that was David who killed Uriah to yep. so that he could have the baby, but spent the whole rest of his life repenting, mm-hmm. writing Psalms, and just saying, search my heart, oh God, and see if this is still in me. Like, we have this piece of leadership, we don't have this piece of, like, following and correcting and changing and restoring. Like, we're lacking seeing our leadership lean into the atonement one because it hadn't happened at mm. that point in time for a lot of our, our prophets in the in the scriptures that we have but we got it now and i think it would be so powerful to see our leaders say this is my story this is where i messed up and here's how i'm working to try and make this better alma and the sons of mosiah went and messed up a whole bunch of stuff but gave up power and privilege that should have gone to them to say you know what we got to go fix what we messed up and they told their story Anytime they preached, they would always defer to their own conversion story and admit their own past failings. Like Alma talking about his past sins, used the word, strong word. I was murdering, spiritually murdering people. And, you know, this was instrumental to his preaching and to his ultimate, you know, conversion was knowing where he came from and sharing that with people. Absolutely. We owe people in some ways the journey. Like we owe, if we're really trying to create connection and we're really trying to say, I'm working to do different than I have before. Can you walk with me through it? And I understand if you can't because the harm was too much, but yeah. I owe it to you to so that you know, I don't expect you to, 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 to take care of me as I go through this process, mm. but I do owe it to you that I'm stepping into this process and I'm going to do what I can to undo some of the things that I did as best as I'm able. I think that's the most powerful part that might be like our next frontier mm. as um, members and as membership. Certainly. Um, when you talk about seeing our leaders as human, yeah, um, and the way you both describe them, how do you, when you get to the temple recommend question, I think mm. it's 
I was just going to pull them up to make sure the order hasn't changed since when I served. Right. Um, how do you handle the question, do you support, sustain our leaders? <laughs> I just want to say I barely handled this question well my own self. Like I just renewed my Temple Recommend about two weeks ago. In my interview, what should have been 15 minutes or less lasted for about an hour because of that very question. Well, actually, the f um, let me just ask... Um, this is question four then. Let me go forward yeah. and then we may talk about seven. Yes, sir. Um, do you sustain the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a prophet, seer, and reveler, and is the only person on earth who auth is authorized to exercise all priesthood keys? And I said yes to that question. And do you sustain the members of the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, as prophets, seers, and revelators, and do you sustain the other general authorities and local authorities of the church. Also a resounding yes. And I knew that answer, mm -hmm. listeners. <laughs> I just <laughs> wanted to create this nuance is that what James and LaShawn are sharing is doesn't change their their answer to that question or their commitment to follow the right. leaders or to support and sustain. Um, and so I think sometimes I probably would have done this five or 10 years ago if I had heard what you'd shared, I might have said, well, you're on the road to apostasy, or you're on the road to not following our leaders, right. or you're on the road, you know, you're the tares that the last day are going to be saved. And now I'm really at peace when I hear you talk, because I realize you are deeply committed members of the church. Right. right. And you deeply support our leaders. And this isn't an issue of support. It's an issue of just seeing our leaders in a way that probably then allows you to have some nuance when they when something is said that's unsettling that maybe down the road will be corrected mm -hmm. and you have the ability you have the tools to navigate that and stay in the church why some without those tools with this binary feeling that everything that's spoken over the pulpit is exactly the way god yep. speaks it and then if they have a a situation where something falls a domino falls or a pirate they have they don't have the nuance or the skill set, and they leave the church. Right. We had, like we don't have the luxury of we believing don't. completely in a leader. You have to, as black people, we, we can't. can't even believe in Martin Luther King because he gets torn apart by people who are like, "Well, he did this and that and that," and all of the good that he does tries to be overshadowed by the fact that that man was human. Mm -hmm. We can't have Malcolm X. We can't have any black leadership. So of course we're not going to come in and look at white men and say. Well, they're going to be perfect because they were the ones that were tearing apart Martin right. Luther King. Like Ezra Taft Vinson is not somebody that I'm going to hang out with because Oof. that man did not like Martin Luther King. But he was the prophet that I grew up under. But when I saw Gordon B. Hinckley, I was like, that's my dude. And Gordon B. Hinckley had a story when he was a little kid. Um, he was with his boys, you know, hanging out. And they said something that was like racially a slur. And his mother read him the riot act. And he said, I never said it again. That man's story is what I want to hear more of. Because as a black person, I don't have the luxury of believing in anybody besides Jesus. Mm. That's the one person that hasn't messed up that I know of. But mm. then the cool thing about even learning about Jesus is understanding that that man also had nuance, has mm. nuance. There are stories where I'm like, he said that to somebody? Mm -hmm. He didn't let the lady eat off the table? Are, mm -hmm. you, ki are you kidding me Call right now? Call this woman a dog right now. He like, did. what? He, he did it. With the kid he and did the it. woman, yes. Yeah. And I'm like, Jesus, that's- A little like, cold. Little yes, cold. He healed her bit. daughter, but it was a little cold. Oh my goodness. Exactly. And so I love that. That to me is inspiring because now there's a place for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not perfect. I'm trying to do this mama thing and this, this church thing and this work thing. And I'm not perfect. But now I see all these people that also aren't perfect. And so when people are like, well, how can you stay? And they say these things. I'm like, 
that's just normal for me. I grew up black in the U.S. Everybody is imperfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I expect more of our leaders, but I don't expect them to do, get everything right because then where's my work? Where's my work? Where's my spiritual gift that I have to develop and I have to do that as my part of this body of Christ? They are a part of the body of Christ also, but my part also has to come into this. So yeah, we don't have the luxury of, of believing in leadership and believing in, in infallible leadership. We just don't have that. So That's that is a skill that transfers for us in the church. Oh, they made mistakes. Whoa, thank goodness. Okay, mm -hmm. good, 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 good. We in the right a place. fascinating research project to understand the nuance, the, this skill set we're calling nuance right now that exists in white Latter-day Saints versus black Latter-day Saints. And I would, your hypothesis, which I would really agree with, is that black Latter-day Saints have had to develop this nuance because of just the things you just shared with us. Why a white mm -hmm. Latter-day Saint may have, I've never had to develop that with, you know, leaders mm -hmm. outside of the church mm -hmm. at times with white leaders. I think um, the closest y'all get is what, JFK? <laughs> Maybe. That's funny. You know what I mean? Maybe. And he got removed. When, but you, like... when you open up with some of this nuance, what, if I were, a, if, and I am a faithful Latter-day Saint, what would be some of the things that I would say to you that would be painful as you kind of open up and say, you know, I don't look at our leaders as perfect. And are there th comments you get at times when you hear people express a view that then is, it makes it harder for you to stay in the church? Certainly. Like, um, one big one for me was when people affirmed the divine institution of the priesthood ban, you know, that simply because a prophet was able to institute it, it must be because God wanted it, you know? And I need people to understand that you are putting a lot on God by saying that my otherization, my dispossession, my dehumanization at the hands of the church came because God wanted it that way. That is not something you can put on God. That is not something you should put on God. That is not something that is substantiated by scripture. It's not some, something substantiated by my own personal revelation. So I need saints to understand that when they say stuff like that, they're saying that God thought we were less than, and that is not doctrine. That is not appropriate. It is also... It's some, not doctrine. All right. are like unto God. All are like unto God. It's in the book. It yeah. is in the book. So, you know, that that that's a big one for me. And I would just, you know, ask the saints to simply... Don't affirm things that don't have any root in doctrine. You know, don't uh, don't affirm things just because a prophet said them, just because they even said them from the pulpit. Like that doesn't mean that it's going to be true or that it's going to be policy or doctrine forever and ever. Because what was right today is not going to be right tomorrow. Like uh, what's his name? Bruce R. McConkie said as much when the uh, policy was overturned. I think what he said is probably one of the most famous statements uh, regarding prophetic 180s. You know, it's just forget about what we said in the past. We had limited light and knowledge. It's it's not implausible that that has happened in the past. It's not implausible that's, that it's going to keep happening. So, sorry, short answer to the question is don't affirm things just because they, just because a prophet said them. That's very helpful, James. And I think I had to listen to Black Latter-day Saints to understand that. As you just shared there, mm -hmm. I hope our listeners could feel a little emotion mm -hmm. with Certainly. James. Um, this is an emotional issue. This is who James is. And as a Black Latter-day Saint, to have that part of our history would normally bring up some feelings. Right. Um, and that's the human part of us that's good and healthy. And so I've certainly learned, you know, your podcast really changed a lot of people in, in my circle as they reached out to me, your episode 153, where you talked about this. And I think we just 
need to create space for people to feel differently about things as they be as they stay a committed Latter-day Saint. I think of um, one heart and one mind out of Moses. Sometimes I hear that weaponized to say you've got to, we've all got to fall in line. And to me, that's one heart and one mind is we both have the same desire to come unto Christ through our restored church. Mm-hmm. And that's the common ground. Right. But then we create, we allow differences within that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're either for us, you're against us. Correct. Um, to me, that creates a feeling we've all got to feel the same way. And you're, all three of us sitting around the table are for us. We're for Christ. We're, we're, we're trying to come into Christ through our restored church. There's complete unity there with all three of us. Mm. But there may be some differences in, in our worldview. And I think we listen to each other to understand those differences. It may minimize the differences. So I hope our listeners are just, you know, if we require everybody to hold the exact same beliefs, our church is going to get really small. <laughs> and James working in the temple, we're going to have less James working in the temple, serving as an ordinance worker and a Baptist coordinator, and less ordinances being done for the people on their side of the veil. If we require this right. purity test, perhaps on um, the to me, you know, you answered that question I without did. a without you know, I know you did in the original interview, and you did um, talk about the. Talk about, this is one of the things we talked about before the podcast, is you have invited black people into the church. You baptized a black man within this past year. Yeah. And what can we do to help more black people join the church and more black people stay in the church as kind of this tagline you have way forward? Yeah. Um, I first want to just validate whatever trepidation any black person would have about the church, you know, like when it comes to... I mean, I go to church every Sunday and I look around me and I see, you know, a lot of white faces, you know, and that's something that I consider as somebody who's been in this church my whole life. I can only imagine what it's like for a black person walking into our church and seeing not a lot of people that look like them. Of course, they're going to have questions. You know, I would ask where, where are we all at? You know, I've talked about it before and I think Marvin Perkins said this, but, you know, when the Higher Research Education Institute did a study about spirituality, black Americans ranked highest in 11 out of 12 spirituality categories. And where black people are 13% of the population, it would stand to reason that there would be more than 13% of us in our congregations. And yet I don't see that. So what is the problem? I would want, and you've already alluded to this, I feel like the way forward has a lot to do with listening to folks. I feel like um, in order for us to really create the kind of space that allows uh, black people to feel safe here and to feel at home here. We have to be doing willing to do what Jesus did to folks on the margins. Jesus listened to folks on the margins. He not only loved them, but he made space for them. He, and I was telling LaShawn on the way here, Jesus broke laws to be among people on the margins. He broke laws to, you know, allow them to feel loved and to experience justice. He didn't just go to people who were he went to people who were social, you know, cast outs. You know, one of my favorite stories is um, when Jesus has, when, when Jesus is getting, who's, whose house is he sitting in? Simon's house. And uh, then the woman washes the tear, washes his feet with the tears. And Simon's like, if he knew what kind of woman this was, would he be allowing this? But Jesus not only allowed it, he welcomed it. And he, you know, forgave this woman, this woman's sins. It is so important that we as Latter-day Saints take after Jesus' Jesus' example and that we 
listen to folks on the margins, validate their trepidation, validate their pain, validate their experience, create a space for that to be heard. And then we have to be proactive in putting ourselves in positions to hear their stories and to make their burdens, uh, make their burdens lighter. I know that's vague, but Jesus, there are so many examples of Jesus doing this throughout the scriptures of him reaching out to the one of him going among the social outcasts. He's told two parables, at least that talk about this. Jesus has at least three or four allegories, uh, that talk about experiences like this. And we just really need to pull a page out of his book and creating a space to both listen and to put ourselves in a position to make their, make their situations better. Just one more thing I want to point out, and I forget what book in the New Testament this is. I think it's the second book of Corinthians, but it is when, P, when Paul is talking about what Jesus did. The, the, the whole chapter is about wealth and welfare in the church, but what he says just really hit me this last time we were reading it during the come follow me year. What, what Peter, what Paul said was that Jesus gave himself to poverty that we might be made rich. Mm. Like he, I'd never heard the atonement described in such a way, but it is absolutely true. Jesus Christ embraced poverty that we through his prop poverty might be made rich. What Jesus did was forfeit his privilege. He gave privilege to other people that we might be able to get all that he has and more. And further, Jesus Christ, his glory is even more now because he did that. That is a hard thing for a lot of saints to, for a lot of saints to want to embrace this idea that we would have to share or like a lot of us aren't even asked to forfeit access. We're just asked to share privilege or share access. But that's sometimes all that Jesus is asking us to do. And if we're willing to do that in whatever spaces of influence that we occupy, we are being more like Jesus. And I would just love for more people to be willing to do that because I don't feel like simply people like me and LaShawn being in the church is going to be enough. People, you know, like you who have this you know, this podcast, this platform, I really like what you're doing here, Richard, because what you in essence do is, and I understand, and I believe I understand the premise of this whole podcast correctly, but you in essence always have people on that think differently than you or love differently than you or look differently than you. And you share their stories. Something like that throughout the church is going to change it. Like that is one thing I really like about this podcast. And one reason I was so excited to be here is because this is part of that effort. People that wouldn't have heard a voice like mine or LaShawn's otherwise are going to hear it now because you have created that space. You have shared your privilege. You have shared your access. You have shared your influence so that our voices might be heard. That I believe is the way forward. That's not going to be the same for everybody. You know, we don't all have that kind of influence and we don't all have that kind of privilege, but giving what we do have, sharing what we do of our wealth or being willing to co go into some sort of poverty that others might have more, that is the doctrine to this whole thing. Thanks, James. You're very kind to me, but I love the way both of you keep answering questions referring to the life of Christ. It all and starts that, and ends with him. And his example and his doctrine. Um, I hope you noticed, our listeners, how often you do that and how well you know the New Testament and the Old Testament. I'm sure the Book of Mormon, you'll be teaching that on your mm -hmm. podcast. But yes, sir. For our listeners, I just love that same doctrine. I look at those parables, and I, I think Christ, knowing our day, wrote those parables that would be timeless and would give us the framework we need to navigate complex issues of our day. 
Um, I love those parables, and I love to have loved studying the New Testament. And I recognize both of you are, very well understand what Christ taught and come back to that. Have to. And it's, I would assume it's part of your journey to stay in the church is just um, our ability of our restored church to bring us to Christ. Um, and that is the goal. LaShawn, your comments as we're having this discussion, anything you comes to your mind you want to share? This is, and it's a little bit, we've been talking about the way forward for Black Latter-day Saints. And you, you could talk about that or anything else that's important to you right now. I think a way forward for the body of Christ is honestly to really look for what your spiritual gift is. You mentioned um, having one heart and one mind and James's dad, my stepdad's cardiothoracic surgeon. And immediately I thought about how the heart has four ventricles and four pieces that make it function. And I think even when we say things like one heart and one mind, well, the heart has four parts. Are all four parts working? Are all four parts healthy? Do they need an intervention? Do they need some support? Because that's what cardiothoracic surgeons do is they do heart surgeries and they go in and they mend it so that it can keep the body strong. One heart and one mind. Think about the brain. The brain has two sides that have to work together and damage to bones. one part of the brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Damage to one part of the brain impacts the whole body. So how are we thinking about each other? How are we using our brain to understand one another? Are we exercising all parts of the brain? What about our hearts? Are our hearts healthy? And for me, I think knowing my spiritual gift is one of the biggest blessings for me because when I don't understand anything else, I understand my spiritual gifts and I use those to help me gain understanding somewhere else. And it might mean that I have to find someone who has a different spiritual gift than me because that's going to be their superpower. And if they can use their superpower on my behalf to help me understand or to make space for me, if I'm not very understanding, I think that's part of the way forward too. I remember there was a Relief Society lesson we had once and we were talking about going into places to help people and we were sharing the exhaustion that we felt, you know, if they weren't getting their lives together or they weren't um, changing how exhausting it was. And a sister said, you know, and I just don't do it anymore. I just, I can't manage it. And we started talking about retreating from people. And I remember asking in Relief Society, I said, but isn't that what Jesus did? Hmm. Didn't he always go? Like, isn't he the source? Aren't we supposed to lean on him and still go to these places? I said, but you know what? Maybe you can't, but what if I can? What if that's part of my journey? What if that's part of my gift? What if I have the ability to go to these places and I'm not as exhausted as quickly as you are? Can you make space for me to come back and be refilled so I can keep going back to those places? That's why I'm a social worker. I don't go and work with folks on their best days. I work with them at their worst days when there's so much pain. But if I feel comfortable doing that, I shouldn't feel like I'm being shamed hmm. for doing it or that I'm going to fall away or be led astray because of who I hang out with. But that's my spiritual gift. And I really wanted us to have that conversation in Relief Society about you may have a power that I don't, but I love you enough to let you use your power and I'll be here with biscuits when you need to come back and recharge. That's cool. You know what I mean? Like, mm. And I think if we felt like we all didn't have to do everything, but all of us can do something, that's a way forward. Um, I, one of the uh, people who like marched, I, one of the lessons that she said to me that I always have held on to, she's like, 
not everybody was marching. Some of us were doing medical care. Some of us were handing out flowers. Some of us were marching, but some of us were writing things down. Some of us were historians. Like we all had a part in the movement. And for me, the body of Christ has all these different parts. If I'm okay being the feet and you can be the hands, great. Be the best hands you can. Cause I'm walking and I'm going to be taking us to the place where we got to go and bring folks together. I have a favorite apostle. I know you're not supposed to have a favorite, but I have a favorite. I have two. I have a top five. And this is like my I got a two, <laughs> James right? James is laughing. <laughs> right? So I feel like there's this one apostle who I would follow anywhere. I would follow him to hell. And I say that because not because he would go to hell, he's probably going to go rescue somebody and bring them back out anyway. And I would follow him because that man speaks like my spiritual language. And I feel like you got to find the folks who speak to you. And of the the other 12 or 15, I like two. So 13 <laughs> <laughs> of the 10 to 13 that, you know, I'm on the on the offs with. Right. Somebody needs their voice, too, because that helps them stay here. There may be a voice that's coming that is able to do additional work that this voice that they need right now cannot do. And I have to let there be space for that because when I wasn't kicking it with Ezra Taft Benson, I was waiting for Gordon B. Hinckley. And I have missed that man ever since he passed away. But I have looked for Gordon B. Hinckley in all of our other leaders. I find the ones that speak to me. I let the other ones exist because I realize that they serve a purpose for somebody just like President Hinckley served a purpose for me. And I have to hold on to that. So I really appreciate these conversations because they make me excited about going to church on Sunday and not feeling so drained. Nuance. I love you just taught nuance there, and you didn't sell out the apostles that you don't quite identify with as building nuance, and you recognize that they may, you know, you didn't say they weren't apostles just because they didn't resonate with you. You didn't say President Benson wasn't a prophet that you support and sustain, even though you disagreed with some of what he did. Yes. And you recognize that um, for other people that may be their go-to person. And to me, that's a, I would call that grace. I would call that nuance. And I would call it incredible spiritual maturity that you're teaching us here. And thank you, both of you. I've got a couple more questions. (laughs) Um, This is a question for both of you, but why this Christian church? Um, Other Christian churches teaches the New Testament. Other Christian churches have black leaders and better music. <laughs> um, you're a musician, um, James. Mm. You might be put to work more in a in another church. Mm. And those gifts that you have as a musician, and maybe you have the same, Lashawn. I don't know that. No, I don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> She's not going to debate you on that. She's ceding that to you, James. But, you know, let's ask you, Lashawn, why this Christian church versus other Christian churches? And I'm assuming there's some doctrine here that's fundamental to our church that may keep you a member of this church or other reasons. Our church is expansive. Our church gives permission to think and to question. And I love that we get to really discuss the mysteries of the kingdom. Our church and our version of Christianity, I love Mormon mysticism. Like I love old 1800s Mormon mysticism. I love those big conversations Conspiracy theory or not, I don't care. I think it's cool that we were even gifted abilities to ask those kinds of questions. What's been cool about it is being able to love the roots of the Black Baptist tradition that my family's come from. 
and be able to bring that skill into discussing scripture. I have had lessons that were supposed to cover, you know, five or six chapters in the Old Testament or New Testament, two verses with my 14 and 15 year old classes. And we had a whole hour just slowing the scriptures down. That's one thing that I think has been my best of both worlds. Um, But it really is just the ability to question, to ask, to think expansively, to be able to go back into the Bible and understand that when Peter had a vision of the third level of heaven, that I know what that is because I've been taught that we have degrees of glory, that I've been taught that there's a purpose and a plan and a connection from this life into the next one. I got that from being a member of this Christian church. And I carry that with me no matter what. And I feel like it's a joiner. It's a, it allows me to still talk with people about the gospel and about Christ. And of course, you know, my catchword, a nuanced way. I get to have layers to it that really make it more open and more fulfilling in a way that's very, very um, nourishing. Great answer. Beautiful answer. James. Yes, sir. Um, One of my favorite and one thing that I've always leaned on when it came to my membership in the church is the idea of a living prophet. Ironically, we've been talking a lot about the issues that I've had with leaders in the past, but this idea that there is a living prophet on this earth, a modern day Moses or Abraham or Noah, that's the thing that probably makes the most sense of religion to me. Like I've never... It, w- it wouldn't make sense that you have a church that would claim to be of Christ or of God and you don't have anybody in it that is, you know, appointed or speaking on his behalf. I need a religion that is going to put me on rapport with God and put me on good terms with him. I need one that is going to communicate with him. I need a living church. Mm-hmm. And you know what I like about having a living church is that there is room for growth. There is room for improvement. There is room for change. You know, that has been super important to me as someone who values truth, no matter where it can be found. And I feel like us as Latter-day Saints, uh, though culturally we're still working on that, our theology is something that very much teaches that, is that truth is valuable wherever it is found. That is doctrine given to us from heaven. Um, A second thing, I guess, is just, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask investigators during the course of my mission was that if God were to give you, you know, more scripture, if he were to give you more of his word, would you be inclined to read it? And I don't think any honest seeker of truth, any honest Christian seeker of truth in particular, would be able to say no to that question. Because what are you going to say? No, I don't want more of Christ's word. You're not going to say no to that if you're a Christian who wants more truth. And the Book of Mormon has been instrumental in me not only getting to know the Atonement of Christ, but seeing exactly how much Christ's covenants with his people were tied to their oppression. One of the first things we learn, one of the first stories in the Book of Exodus, or in the Book of Genesis, no, Book of Exodus, is when Christ himself tied uh, the oppression of the Israelites to his covenant with them. And he did that so many more times through the Book of Mormon. There's so many more stories of people who were under oppression and them being rescued by the goodness of God and them making covenants with him subsequently. And the people just becoming this really strong in the gospel people. Like that is a story that's like a recurring theme in the Book of Mormon. And that's something I really appreciate. So I just really enjoy having more of Christ's word and just seeing how active the gospel of Jesus Christ is in the plight of the oppressed. That speaks to me as somebody who is black. And it also speaks to me as somebody who just wants to see life and the worship experience be better for everybody, but especially those folks on the margins who perhaps don't necessarily feel like their worship experience can be as full because of the identities they have. Great answers, both of you. I'm going to read question seven 
Um, we did read question four, so now we're reading question seven, listeners. Do you support or promote any teaching, practice, or doc- doctrine contrary to those of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And the correct answer would be no. Correct. Um, and But a lot of members have um, feelings where they support the leaders, but they privately wish something would change. So they may hold—I kind of put those into two boxes sometimes. I may— hold a different legal position than Mm -hmm. the church. So the church right now in some states is um, working against um, legalizing medicinal marijuana, and I may have a legal position different than that, or perhaps even I am fine with marijuana being legal. I'm just not going to, you know, I'll keep the word of wisdom, but I'm fine with that as a societal thing being legal. And then there's sometimes hope in the church that something changes. So let's say that I privately hope that tea or caffeine, tea or coffee, sometimes at some point down the road is not against the word of wisdom as I continue to obey it. Mm. And so I hold some nuance there privately, but I'm not out trying to promote it or trying to change Turk doctrine. Um, just talk about, you know, those are a couple of things I've thought about. Just talk about that question for you. And if you hold, you know, how you manage that question, if you privately hold feeling that you wish something would change down the road or you don't agree with something completely right now as you continue to sustain? You know, um, I'll, I'll just say, I feel like when I had this uh, interview with, with my member of the stake presidency a couple of weeks ago, he ultimately gave me my temple recommend because I told him to do it. You know what I'm saying? Just, it was a long conversation. It was a hard conversation because I didn't feel like me not being able to answer that question should have precluded me from entering the temple and working in there. I ultimately said, do you want to redeem the dead or not? Like we can do this or not do this. Like, what do you want to do? Just I'm here. I want to be in the temple. I want to help. I want that worship experience. And I want to be actively engaged in this work. I felt like that man uh, mattered more than anything when it came to, um, you know, how I answered that question. But there are a couple of ways we can navigate this question. And the, the first one, I didn't feel so comfortable with doing it. But you know, it was a suggestion by the member of the stake presidency. And that was simply that this is Jesus Christ Church. This is not the church of our leaders. This is Jesus Christ Church. And according to Jesus Christ, at least as far as I understand, the things that I disagree with are things that he's okay with me disagreeing with. So I could also so I could skirt by the question that way if I wanted to. But because I knew that I knew what the real question he was asking was, I had to find a way to answer that question in a way that didn't compromise my integrity because I don't want to lie. You know, I don't want to lie. But at the same time, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater by answering this question truthfully and then staying out of the temple for what I feel is a very trivial reason. So I, I don't have a good answer to that question as far as how I navigate that other than simply saying I I I don't if there are things that I disagree with I can take peace in knowing for myself that Jesus Christ is okay with that and he's okay with me going into the temple as a result but also it's just super hard for me to say that for everybody who answers this question the way that I do, that their stake presidents are going to be as understanding as mine was because everybody's playing leadership roulette in some form or another. I know that the last time I answered this particular question, even though it was different last year, 
Um, it wasn't a big deal. This time it was a big deal. For some people who, are, who don't occupy the space that I do, even though I'm black, I'm also male, cisgendered, able-bodied, educated. Like I know some people who don't occupy those identities who are having a really hard time creating space for themselves. And uh, you know, I was talking to a listener of my own podcast the other day about how her bishop, simply because he felt like she couldn't answer the appropriately the appropriate way to question seven, that he's just not going to do the interview. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm very privileged in that I at least had an opportunity to have this dialogue. Some people aren't so fortunate, and um, you know, I, that just I feel like that has to be named while also saying I don't have a good answer for this because I feel like I got lucky. You know, I really do. <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't. <laughs> it's a really good answer, even yeah. though I think what you communicated is your personal integrity to want to go to the temple with being honest with your priestly Correct. about how you felt. Right. And I look at the, and I just honor that. I think you're a stand-up guy. Both Appreciate of you it. are. And respect to you, James, for being the kind of man and the kind of woman you are, LaShawn. And so I love that about you. And I love, to me, the Temple Recommend has a couple, at the end of the day, they're really belief-related questions or behavior-related questions. Mm -hmm. And there's no issue with behavior. So you're not sort of saying, I've, I, got, I haven't met the hurdles on behavior. Mm -hmm. And there's, and you believe in our leaders, you believe in the validity of those temple ordinances. Right. And it's just, you hold some beliefs that you hope may change down the road or you're, or you're uncomfortable with current. Mm -hmm. And to me, I like Elder Christofferson's comment about the old question that I would say still applies. It does, and you know this as well as I do, it really doesn't become an issue. He's mostly referring to our feelings if someone supports gay marriage or a pride parade, mm -hmm. unless they're out campaigning against the church or actively asking, the, you know, or drawing people to their way of feeling. So I think he created space in that statement. And I hope if local leaders are listening or because it is a roulette, it's really scary for members. And I've never been in this position because I hold you talk about the privilege you hold. Yeah. <laughs> I recognize that I hold more as I'm older, I'm white, I've had, I've been a YSA bishop and so on. I have a great relationship with my local leaders. So I mm -hmm. could have that kind of discussion and kind of know where it's going to go. Um, because I've lived in the same neighborhood for 20 years and I know my local. So I have, and I just recognize there's a lot of listeners that don't have any privilege or just don't know what's going to happen as they open up. But I would just hope that we can create space for our members um, with question seven. Right. That we should be are. looking for excuses to get people in the temple, not excuses to keep them out. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? And especially if they want to go to the temple. Right. Sure. And if I they believe go. in the temple and you, you not only want to go, but you serve there. Right. And so I, I just hope we could, we need to do better as a church. Um, because, you know, I mean, the research I saw from Jana Reese's book is more than half of millennials are fine with gay marriage. Mm -hmm. Now mm -hmm. that doesn't mean they necessarily are asking the church doctrine to change but they're fine with that being a civil law. Um, and so that could be, you know, some would look at that, do you support or promote any teaching practice or that's contrary to the church? And some would say that if you are fine with gay marriage being legal for those to follow that path, mm -hmm. which half of millennials are in the church, then you would disqualify half of the millennials from the temple recommend. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't, no one wins on that. No. Well, and I think we have to remember what's the purpose of the temple? Like, why do we go? You know, like the purpose of the temple is to be connected. And for me, as someone who does support marriage equality, anything that's going to give more connection, I think is going to make God happy. And we want people to 
come together and to put Christ at the center of their marriage? Like, how would my gay friends not benefit from having Christ at the center of their marriage? For me, again, my spiritual gift is love. I love people. And I'm like, the more we can get sealed and back to heaven, the better off we're all going to be. And we'll figure it out when we get there. Mm -hmm. But why on earth would I want to get in the way of someone's spiritual growth by being able to attend the temple do work for their dead mm -hmm. and have validation in their spiritual gift, have validation in their ability to follow the gospel. Um, when, when my bishop or would ask if I supported any groups and I would say, okay, which ones do you mean? Give me a list. And then I can tell you, cause I wanted to see where my bishop, where my leadership was with that question. And so I would say, okay, so I don't support racism, but I know that people believe that we have a doctrine about it. Does that put me in or out? Which way, which way we're going to go with it? And he was like, uh, he didn't have an answer to it. I said, okay, so now if it's not, cause I do, I, I actively, you know, work against racism. And if I see it in the church, that puts me at odds with the church. So is that going to put me at odds for a temple recommend? And I'd stumped them with that question. Because I think we can use it for whatever we feel is most politically expedient. But let's talk about what's historically also accurate. I actively preach against racism. I actively preach against oppression. But when we start talking about racism, then I'm at odds with church doctrine from at least the 1940s all the way up to 2013. When we had the, the, the Gospel Topics essay come out. So I feel like my temple, my it was never 15 minutes. I'm like, okay, let's talk about this one, Bishop. And he's like... But Sister Schultz, we have to, I'm like, I understand, but like, you can't just ask me a yes or no question. I have to explain this to you. Mm -hmm. And they'd always, they would ask me, are you a full tithe payer? And I was like, yes, but I'm not consistent. You didn't ask me if I was a consistent tithe payer. Whenever I do pay, it's a full tithe, but it's not a consistent tithe. So is that going to be one of the questions now too? I don't know if it's changed where they've added that in there now, but I'd always say, well, yes, this part is true, but then there's this other piece. How does this piece you know, factor into me getting this little rectangle that I can put in my wallet. And I think I love the temple interview question because I just love time with leadership. I love time with them, seeing them serve and be there and to hear people who are wrestling with whatever they got going on in life to say, and I still want to go to the temple. And I feel like there's this, this deeper question of, I go to the temple because it is good for me. And I go to the temple because I'm supposed to. And I think we're having a lot of the supposed to and the good for me conversation within those questions when we turn them into conversations. Just a couple of thoughts is this is a really good discussion. We need to have these kind of discussions because I think it just helps us all do better. And then we mm -hmm. don't get surprised in question seven and have these very difficult moments. If we can kind of talk about this before the temple recommend interview, I I sometimes think if I lived in 1974, which I did, by the way, I was 15, <laughs> you two didn't, but I was 13. And um, if I had been an adult at that point and privately hoped and even prayed that the ban would be lifted, right? Um, as well as, but continued to support and sustain my leaders and opened up to a, I would hope that in 1974, we were creating space for members that hoped the priesthood ban would lift, even though the church teaching was this is from God and this isn't mm -hmm. going to change. And so I just, it, sometimes I look back and it wants me to be really humble. We saw the movie at Harriet. My wife and I saw the mirror at Harriet and I saw her heroic efforts to free slaves. And to be honest, I looked at those white men and I, I didn't know which side I'd be on. Mm -hmm. I honestly didn't. I hope I would have seen Harriet's efforts. But if I were a slave owner from the South, I probably would have been threatened by that. Mm -hmm. It would have changed my livelihood. So the historical perspective sometimes wants me to be really humble. 
and and give space and grace. So I hope as members, I look at our LGBTQ brothers, which can be an issue today, and I hope that they can fully, more fully participate in the church at some way. Um, and those that are in same-sex relationships, uh, yeah, I hope in some way that they can more fully participate than they can now. And to me, that's consistent with all like unto God and the body of Christ and making everybody welcome. Now, but at the same time, I don't hold the keys for that decision in the mm-hmm. church. So I support the general counsel of the church, which I don't sit on, as they wrestle with complex things. But I hope that more, because most so many of my LGBTQ brothers leave the church, and we're worse off without them. Mm. And I recognize when I was at BYU dating, I had an authorized path. My sexual orientation matched mm-hmm. <laughs> the authorized path in the church, and everything kind of clicked in my life. And we have six kids and a wonderful life. And I recognize if I were now, I go back and have more empathy for, you know, a BYU student my age who's gay and is not going to do a mixed orientation marriage and I just and has just as much of a testimony to the church as I did mm-hmm. and has you know less options than I did and so I just have you know I have empathy perhaps more than I used to um one of the quotes for you white listeners that helped me I was reading Brene Brown's book one day and I think it was in Belonging, I mean, Braving the Wilderness, and she talked about this quote that just changed me. Um, and she's, and you, I believe Black Lives Matters. This is, I was debate having with my white friends about the hashtag Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matters. And some of my white friends said, well, All Lives Matter. Why do we have to segment Black Lives Matter as a subgroup? Can't we just say All Lives Matter? And I thought, well, that's probably true. And all lives matter, so why do we have to have this Black Matters? And then I read this quote, Black Lives Matter is a movement to rehumanize black citizens. All lives matter, but not all lives need to be pulled back into moral inclusion. Mm. And then I did a 180, because I recognized that, yeah, it's really convenient for me to say all lives matter, but I don't need to be pulled back into moral inclusion. I've always been there. Mm -hmm. And so it's disingenuous, if that's the right use of that word, and so that flipped for me, and I just use that. I'm not perfect on this subject. <laughs> um, in fact, Good the last man. podcast you did with me um, stretched me, and it caused me, I was uncomfortable in that podcast a couple times with the things you were sharing. Good. And I like, and I actually think growth comes through being uncomfortable. And I'm glad you said good. (laughs) And I grew in that podcast because you were causing me to think about things I hadn't thought about before. Mm. And I recognize that, that we could just say, well, that uncomfortableness means the spirit's not there, but I don't believe that. I think we grow and are uncomfortable um, through hearing new truths from a new perspective. Definitely. And I need to hear black voices, black Latter-day Saints to help me grow. So just a couple of comments. The last question I have for you, unless there's anything else, Black, I don't know if this is another research project for listeners, but um, I've noticed my the limited sample sizes, Black Latter-day Saints are have a natural allyship to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Darius Gray, the two that everybody I've met, why, you know, and so I've, I've, I'm sensing that. I mean, you're great, both of you have, without directly talking about it, have brought up your LGBTQ brothers and sisters. I would say we're certainly in a position where we're able to have more empathy toward people who are also on the margins simply because, you know, if you sit there, you're also going to be empathetic to people who also sit there. But I also want to, you know, be careful in suggesting that 
all of us, Good. you know, meaning black folks. That would be a broad brushstroke, which right, would be fair. Are, are going to understand what it is to, you know, sit on the margins in that particular way. While I, while I do believe we're more inclined to be more empathetic toward it, I would be slow to say that um, that all of us get it simply because, you know, we're different, you know, not even all black folks even agree on whether or not what happened to Colby was racism. You know what I'm saying? Like we, the two of us, Colby and I didn't even agree to use the word racism to describe what happened to him. And I want to leave space for there to be a difference in how people address their oppression or another person's oppression. But um, I do think it's fair to say that people who are already on the margins in one way or another are certainly more inclined to have empathy for people who are also on the margins, whether or not they're going to, or, I mean, that, that will remain to be seen with each individual, but I, I would agree mostly with that, That's with good. that idea. LaShawn, any thoughts on that? Yes. Nuance. Um, often in these conversations, when people say black people or black Latter-day Saints are seeming to be naturally aligned with LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, what they don't say is Black Latter-day Saints seem to be more aligned with white LGBTQ LGBTQ Latter-day Saints because we have Black LGBTQ Latter-day Saints in our community. And so what we have to also do there is understand that the alignment is because we understand marginalization. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes for a lot of our white brothers and sisters, their um, membership in LGBTQ communities is their first experience of marginalization. And immediately we will look to other communities who have gone through it to kind of figure out, okay, how did they get through it? How do I get through it? But it doesn't necessarily create an alignment. It creates a reference point. Mm. And so we still have black LGBTQ members in the church who are struggling with their blackness or struggling because of people's assumptions and feelings about their blackness, not necessarily struggling with it, but struggling with the, with the repercussions from others about their blackness, but also about their identity and their membership in LGBTQ communities. And when our LGBTQ brothers and sisters that are black experience racism in white LGBTQ communities, it's another conversation that we have to have because one thing will never trump everything. And so we are a community that believes in collectivism and in gathering, generally speaking. Historically, you can see it as demonstrated in our, here in the U.S. and other places. So, of course, we're going to say, hey, if there's not a place at the table for you, come to our table. And we'll welcome you. And we'll be there with you. And then we're trying to figure out, even within the Black community, how are we navigating LGBT community membership in the Black community? And then how's that looking when it's our white LGBTQ sisters and brothers also? So it's it's more about the body of Christ again. And we are there with people who know what it is like to be alone. Hmm. We are there with people who know something outside of me has said, I've got to go to God and ask if I'm a mistake. We get that. And when we survive it and we help other folks survive it, if we help them facilitate a better relationship with Christ, our job is done. Our lives are not being lived in vain because we're bringing people to the source that they've been seeking. Now it becomes, okay, how do we become a refuge for each other? How do we help each other? How do we remove the barriers that we experience in our different communities so that we experience them less? That really becomes the work and part of the movement. I think the things that pain me a lot um, within our church spaces is when 
I will see my white sisters who will fight for women's access and women's rights and feminism in the church. But they struggle when it comes to dealing with racism against black women and black people. I'll see my LGBTQ brothers and sisters who are white, who are fighting for access and for equality and for validation for LGBTQ communities. And they struggle when it comes to racism, but they feel themselves affiliated because they're experiencing oppression. And they say, unfortunately, there's this piece that seems to scream out, how dare you treat us like you treat them? Mm -hmm. Because I was okay with it happening to them as long as it wasn't happening to me. And now that it's happening to me, it has to change. And that's the unfortunate lockstep that I kind of see with our different movements that I wish we could talk more about. Because it shouldn't be happening to us at all. Mm -hmm. But you notice it when it happens to you because then they can outline. And this is what they do. Black people get it. I'm like, oh, so you do get it. You Mm -hmm. only get it when you're experiencing it. Okay, cool. I want that same energy Mm -hmm. to get rid of racism Mm -hmm. that you're using for women's equity and and feminism and LGBT communities for white people. Like that same energy Mm -hmm. against racism. But so many of my brothers and sisters who are white, they just, but I don't know how. I get it. But you Mm got to try. Mm -hmm. You got to try because people aren't listening when we say that it's happening to us, but they're Mm going to listen to you. And like that 180 quote that you had about rehumanize, absolutely. Keep doing that. Keep giving it to people because if it gave you a 180, it might give them 90. And then I can help you do the other 90 to give them a 180 as well. You know what I mean? So it's just... It's nuanced and it's heavy. It's hard Mm -hmm. because nobody wants to be like, well, how come you feel like this about the LGBTQ communities? You know, we're minorities, too. Absolutely. But once you get humanized, we're still left behind. Mm -hmm. Will you come back and get us? Get my favorite apostle because he'll come back and get us. I know he will. Go get him and come back and get us because we can't do this without each other. The hand can't be whole if I'm missing a thumb. You know what I mean? Well, it's the left hand. It's not my dominant hand anyway. Okay, but you're still going to need it when your right hand gets, you know, busy or hurt or something. We have to work out, you know, all these pieces and these muscles and to realize that growth for one means growth for another and that we are willing to really facilitate that growth. So, yeah, those are some of my thoughts. Great thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, I may listen to this podcast again. I usually don't ever listen to my podcast, but I may take this out on a walk with me one morning and listen to both of you as there's a lot of really good nuggets. We're at the end. I'd love to give each of you a chance, just a closing comment, and make sure to reference your, we'll let you go, James, first, and then your, then LaShawn, if just any closing comments, and I want to make sure to reference your podcast that you're doing with our friend Derek Knox. Yes, sir. Um, I think the only thing I would want to say is, hearkening uh, back to a thought that LaShawn uh, brought up earlier, I believe she said something along the lines of, you know, some of us can do this, Some of us can be present in church, but not all of us can, you know, something I try to be very sensitive to is whether, however, my brothers and sisters may be on the margins. I have the energy. I have the stamina. I have the testimony or whatever. I have something that allows me to go to church every Sunday and be able to deal with whatever it is that black Latter-day Saints deal with. Not all of us can do that though. And, um, I, uh, I want to validate that. You know, I want to acknowledge that there are people who do not currently come to church because of, you know, a marginalized identity they espouse and they haven't been able to muster the emotional or spiritual stamina to be able to come to church every Sunday as a result. But because I can, I continue to come to church and I continue to do the best I can to make church a hospitable place for folks like that, primarily because we need more of them here. We need more folks. And you said this earlier, but the church is going to be better with more of us here. And that's the 
that's one of the reasons that I continue to go as often as I do and perform my responsibilities the way. That's one of the reasons. And you I got a in couple the, callings I got in your ward, plus yeah. your plus temple my temple. assignment. And I can't tell you how happy I feel anytime I go to the temple and I see a family of people that look like me. I'll see their kids look right at me, and you know there'll be this brief moment of. I see you, you see me. We out here together. We are doing this. To see you as a temple worker. Yes, to see me as a temple worker. You know what I'm saying? Just that is that That's is powerful. Cool. And it's very it's it's very necessary. But but again, I, I do want to validate those folks that are on the margins who don't feel like they can come to church. But for the for those of us who are able to come, you know, I feel like a big part of my responsibility is to make sure I come and make sure that I have that I perform the best I can to make this a more hospitable place. Uh, for others. You know, I experienced this with my friends. I experienced this with my own family. And I just feel it's so necessary for us to uh, do that work. For those of us who can, for those of us who have that stamina and uh, testimony and emotional and spiritual energy, if we have it, we got we to gotta use it to, to just make this a better place for everybody. Because as LaShawn just finished saying, you know, left hand, the right hand, we need them all here. I'll cite a different scripture to, you know, that, uh, to illustrate the point, but I believe it's in one of the Peters where the Lord is teaching us that we cannot be made perfect without them and they cannot be made perfect without us. Joseph Smith would go on to quote this later in the Doctrine and Covenants talking about uh, the necessity of baptisms for the dead or vicarious ordinances in general. But this whole work of Christianity is very interdependent. That is the whole that is the whole thing. Christianity is very interdependent. We're not going to make it without each other. And again, to hearken back to something that Dr. LaShawn said in one of her pieces that's online, uh, she taught me something about uh, the parable of the lost sheep that I never knew before. But uh, one reason, another lesson in the parable of the lost sheep is that not only that every sheep is valuable, but that the flock is not complete or safe without every single sheep. It again references this idea that Christ himself taught us that unless all of us get there together, none of us are making it. So we have a responsibility to make sure everybody makes it. That's what Christ came to do, was to make sure that everybody makes it. So that's what we have to do. Those of us who can go to church, we have the responsibility to make sure that everybody makes it. We can't get there unless everybody comes there with us. I love that. I love heaven to me is reaching out and bringing others with us Mm -hmm. versus just sort of isolating myself into heaven. Right. So well said. And the name of your podcast? Yes, sir. It is uh, Beyond the Block. Pod. It, the name of the podcast is Beyond the Block. You can find it at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. And we're on most streaming platforms, Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and, you know, all those other ones. So please check out um, James and Derek's podcast. I love the premise of that podcast is look at the, the current Come Follow Me curriculum and look for marginalized stories within that. That's Correct. awesome. Yes, sir. That would be great to just normalize that within our lessons and our culture and our talks. LaShawn. I think I will share the story when, one of the stories when I was exhausted. Um, I was with my dear friend, Zandra Vrains, at her house. And this is Zandra Vrains from Sisters in Zion. And I said, you know, I'm tired. I, I don't want to go to church anymore. I'm, I'm tired. And I, I want one takeaway is for those of us, when we're not tired, to be able to make space for people who are. And Zandra pointed me to my baptismal covenant because I hadn't gone to the temple in a while. So I was like, you can't use the temple against me. She was like, no, we're just, let's look at the baptismal covenant. So we went to Mosiah 18, eight and nine. 
And we talked about being desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they might be light. And I put that scripture to use and I was mad at Zandra and I called her and I said, I'm mad at you. She's like, why? I said, because it worked. She said, what do you mean? I said, the moment that I said, I don't know how to bear this person's burden. How do I do it? Immediately, I got a measure of space to help me try again. Willing to mourn with those that mourn. I don't know how to mourn. Okay, I'll help you. Comfort those that stand in need of comfort. I don't know how to do it. Okay, I'll help you. The baptismal covenant is like the best gotcha ever. Because <laughs> if you really engage it, you're like, but I don't know how to mourn with Black Lives Matter. I don't know how to mourn with missing indigenous women. I don't know how to mourn with the LGBTQ community. I don't know how to mourn with, insert whatever the marginalized population might be. Take that scripture to God and say, I don't know how to do it, but I know I covenanted to try. Can you help me? And immediately, my testimony is that you will figure out that there's a piece of you that can try again. And I think that that's the, that's the hard part. When we have our places of privilege, it's hard to figure out how to make space because we feel like we're compromising ourselves and we are not. We covenanted to do these things. Mm -hmm. And learning the covenant, learning the nuances of what that covenant looks like is where God will say, your heart was here. And if we make a mistake, we make a mistake. But my heart was in trying to live into this covenant. So God, this is what I tried. And I may have made a mistake, but I can do it differently now. But we're not going to know if we don't try and live into the covenant. And I was eight when I got baptized. And so I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find any way out of it. And I was like, mm -hmm. okay. But it's become my go-to. And it's my, it, I'm scared to do it. Because now I know what will happen. And I'm like, God, I don't know how to. Oh, oh okay, I got to try. But I love it because it's not hard. I don't have to be anybody that I'm not. In my different privileges that I have as a woman, I'm cisgendered, heterosexual, Christian, all the things that I have. Yeah, I'm a black person too, but there are some places where I do have some space where I can leverage. All I have to do is try to live into my baptismal covenant because that's what I did when I was eight that I was like, I should have waited till I was like 20 something. <laughs> I had some stuff to get baptized for by then, right? But when I was eight and believed and had no reason to necessarily question that baptism was a bad thing for me. Living into that covenant is where I think so many of us might find some space for grace that allows us to create space for others who do, are not at the center. And we don't have to, and it's not that they don't have to be at the center with us, but space for grace to go to the margin and sit with them and to say, hey, I'm going to go hold this door open. You going to come with me? Okay, great. Let's try and walk into it together. You don't want to go? Okay, I'll walk back with you to the margin, but I'm not going to leave you because I covenanted that it was the desire of my heart to be part of God's fold. So that's that's for anybody who finds themselves struggling. It's an it's a an easy baptismal covenant, but it's deep and it's rich and it's beautiful and it's nuanced and it's nuanced for a reason. Thank you. And tell people how to connect with your clinical work. You can find me at www.drlashawn.com and you can access all of the information about relational spaces on Facebook and on Instagram. It's at Relational Spaces on Facebook, or Relational Spaces with Dr. LaShawn on Facebook and Instagram. So I'm there. I got a couple different profiles, but I really do value connection and everything in my practice is rooted in creating connection and relationships where it matters most. Dr. LaShawn Williams, James C. Jones, um, thank you both for joining us on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. On behalf of all of our listeners, you two are great. Thank and you. there has been some wonderful things you've shared. And I just, I know our listeners, they will just love some of the things you shared. And thank you so much. 
And thank you, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.